0: Welcome to Software at Scale, a podcast where we discuss the technical stories behind large software applications. I'm your host, Utsav Shah, and thank you for listening. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Software at Scale podcast. Joining me here today is Robert Cook, the CTO and co-founder of 3Forge, a full-stack internal tools platform. Uh, 3Forge helps Many companies, including some of the largest financial organizations in the world, build systems that help them understand their own data and improve internal productivity. Welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on today.
0: Yeah, so uh, I want to start off with some of your work experience and really your story. Uh, The first item on your LinkedIn, if you look at it like like chronologically, is like infrastructure lead at Bear Stearns. First of all, like I, I don't think I've seen the name Bear anywhere except for The Big Short, so it was <laughs> cool to see that. But what does that mean? If you could just explain to us, yeah.
1: That's funny. Um <laughs> that 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 that's the takeaway of Bear Stearns, because <laughs> it really was a it really was a great company in many ways. Um the the department I worked in, equities, um, which happened to be just below mortgage-backed securities, um, that that's where I worked was in the equities department. And 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 frankly, that was a great group to work with. Um we did uh, we built some of the the first high frequency trading systems, and by high frequency trading systems, I mean systems that were electronically looking at, you know, the world. Um, in terms of like market data, where things are at, making decisions on that. Um, and so you can imagine when you are building high frequency trading applications um, and, and, and just to kind of uh, overview as to what that is, you're taking in market data, you're taking in client requests for orders, you're kind of marrying those together and. Um, And then you're deciding at what point you want to place, you want to electronically place an order into the market um, to get that, uh, to get that executed, aka to get that filled. Um, So basically we're building these systems to do that. And this is back in the early 2000s um, when this really was starting. And this opened up this. New concept really at the time, which was computers fighting other computers. It still goes on today. Um, very in, in, in many industries. I mean, even airline tickets and things like that. But at that time, that was kind of new. The idea that if you can build software faster than someone else, then you're going to win every time. Now, software is a big part of it, but hardware is a big part of it also. Um, and there's a lot of things that goes into what it in, into, um, high frequency trading in terms of being able to do it very, very fast, but also be able to do it reliably, right? You're dealing with large amounts of money. So when we talk about, um, dealing with infrastructure, that, uh, that, that's a big part of it, which is around the hardware, the network connectivity, all of those sorts of things. Um, with that said, I should, I should clarify, it was head of infrastructure actually at the, uh, dark pool liquid net, which is another fascinating story at, at Bear Stearns. I was, um, uh, running the high-frequency trading or uh, working on the high-frequency trading part. Um, but at LiquidNet, I was um, head of infrastructure. And there it really meant, yes, um, paying attention to kind of the, the uh, I would call it the application or the the layer, the software layer that sits between what developers are actually building, like custom business logic, and then the hardware itself. So you could think of it as as, as a platform, kind of a generic platform that people build on top of.
0: Mm-hmm. and and when you think about developers or when you say developers does that mean they're building these rules like oh if x uh, equity or x commodity goes to a certain price and a bunch of more complex logic than that is that kind of what you're describing it's, yeah it's
1: it's funny when you say yeah, what do you mean by developer because I can mean many things and and the analogy I always use is well when we say an engineer, what does that mean because An engineer can mean everything from someone who drives a a train, right? The guy who sits in the front of a train, that's a train engineer, all the way to someone who's actually out there, you know, designing antennas um, or electrical engineers. So, so my point is that um, the term engineer is can, can cover a huge spectrum. Uh, Same thing with developer. Uh, So in, I would, I would think there's various degrees or various disciplines within development. Um, when I'm talking about, uh, so so I look at so so jumping into ThreeForge a little bit, we are developers who develop software so that other developers can develop software quickly. To your point, um, the developers that would use our software, yes, they're generally SMEs, subject matter experts who understand the industry. Um, that they're writing software in, and they're using that to basically build. And I don't want to trivialize it, but basically build, you know, if-then statements to basically take the various inputs and decide what to do. Um, basically uh, encode that business logic, and 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 move forward. And so that's actually what what Three forge has really been about, because. Going back to the different disciplines of developers, you can actually go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is there's someone out there who's taking assembly code um, and writing that in order to create a compiler so that then we can compile our code, et cetera, et cetera. So there's many, many layers to the stack. Um, and and I think as the world matures, or at least the software w- world matures, um, we're getting better and better at being able to identify and layer the different development approaches. Um, and so 3Forge, we're focused on what I would call a development platform, meaning that we kind of sit between the operating system and the developer um, and so that we've developed a lot of the components that end developers need in order to build business applications.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. I have to ask you one question about high frequency trading, which is like, is, do you think the systems like HFT systems would be equipped to deal with a larger event like the pandemic? Or do you like, I hear all these, or I read all these news articles, of Renaissance, Uh, not doing well when COVID
1: just happened or the lockdown just happened.
0: Uh, I don't know. This is a pretty vague question, but what's your take on it?
1: Right. Well, this is a perfect plug for my platform (laughs) because I would say that's what was largely missing. Um, And I I guess I can talk about Bear Stearns now because it's no longer, well, it's no longer around. It's been wrapped into JP Morgan. Um, But, you know, that's something that was missing which was these high-frequency trading decisions can make decisions very, very rapidly. Obviously, it's, it's baked into the name, high-frequency. Um, but they, at the end of the day, they're executing software that some some subject matter expert encoded into it. Um, and and that's, that's what it does. Um, that's what it's designed to do. And yes, you can have machine learnings kind of things sitting in the background that analyze macroscopic things to make, more deferred, delayed decisions kind of and, and so on and so forth. I, I can go into that in great detail, but um, what I think, what I think was what I felt was missing and got me started on this in a way was you had these systems that were almost like like bombs they were, they were like they were like a nuclear reactor. I mean they could produce huge amounts of energy, but if something went wrong, they could explode you know what i mean and and the thing is imagine you've designed you know your ge you've designed this nuclear reactor you've got it sitting there you know, you need to have a lot of periphery around that in order to monitor and understand what's happening inside the reactor. You can never have enough because when that anomaly happens, you want to understand what's gone wrong and you want to have the playbook ready for what you're going to do, et cetera. And so those companies, and by the way, we work with over half of the top, um, tier one banks in North America, um, And and I'm proud to say our customers, they have tooling in place to basically try to get ahead of or at least not be last in line um, when an event like that takes place. And in fact, sadly, a lot of times that's when we've gone into these companies is after an event like that. Because you know the the decisions that need to be made need to be made split second. I mean, we literally have use cases where there are eyeballs on a screen; um, they're staring at data all day. When something goes wrong, it's alerted to them. If it's a if it's a very big event, they want to be able to then take a human. You know, they want to be able to very quickly have workflows with their team members to make a, an educated uh, decision to decide what to do, and that might mean stop trading. And I think most of us have seen. Um, all the way back, you know, Night Capitals, an, an interesting yep. event to throw that one out there. Um, the Facebook IPO, I mean, I could go on and on the bats, uh, IPO that, that was rescinded. Uh, these are all, these are all cases where it really was good software executing in many ways as it was supposed to. Uh, but the problem is the, the, what was there pr- the periphery around that to be able to get so that when something went wrong, that a human could see and quickly take action. And that's something that's really what got us started was helping companies install that.
0: Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. There's so much risk. And I think the nuclear reactor analogy makes a ton of sense to me. Maybe just in one minute, could you describe to the or something about Night Capital or Facebook IPO or like I've heard about what happened at Night Capital, but what happened during the Facebook IPO? Uh
1: well the, the Facebook uh IPO. Uh, From my understanding, and and at this point, I was at Three Forge, so it's really me kind of talking through, I've been told by. So just to be clear, this was an issue with the IPO that was being managed by NASDAQ. NASDAQ's an exchange. Um, Our customers are interacting with that exchange. Um, And what happened is that exchange, um, the exchange itself had an issue where they were receiving orders, but they they weren't filling them properly. Um, or they weren't sending back the fills properly, and um, just like I guess to make an analogy for those that might not be familiar with this, imagine a ticketing. And now, in, in fact, you know, we just had Southwest. I don't know if that's something that that you've heard about. Southwest had an issue a week ago, right? So this is not limited to just um, and boy, I wish they were a customer of ours because I think we could have helped them on this. <laughs> uh, but this is this is the sort of thing that we focus on. So, but but let's let's go back to let's go back to. Um, uh, NASDAQ here before I lose my train of thought. So the, so basically, uh, oh, the analogy I was going to make is if you look at a ticketing system, imagine if everyone's buying their tickets and those tickets are actually getting executed, meaning that the, the, the credit card is uh, getting charged, but the seats aren't getting filled let's just imagine that scenario so all of a sudden you you have many many people buying the same seats on the airplane that's that's an example that's not that's not a perfect analogy for what happened with the facebook ipo but it's a close enough example right so everyone's trying to get to participate this in but the but the actual Things that are taking place aren't getting reported back to the customers. And that got delayed for 40 minutes. And then all of a sudden, all the fills came rushing in with with stale prices and everyone was really ticked off. (laughs) <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, just to be clear, when, when we think about the Facebook IPO, I don't know the exact, I can't give the exact numbers. We could go look it up the volumes, but we can just take a typical stock. Many stocks when they IPO will have millions of transactions in, in basically during the, during the opening session. And so that happens. and You've got these millions of transactions. If something goes wrong, you literally have a million different people that are ticked off that you need to basically be able to to respond to and handle as quickly as possible. And the problem is usually when you play Monday morning quarterback, you can go back and say, you know what? We could have identified this in minute one, meaning when 10,000 transactions had taken place, but we didn't really figure it out until minute 40. And so you've compounded the problems forty x by being, by being so delayed in getting that information, and this is what it means and and you know again i i don't i I don't know that much about nuclear reactors, but I would assume it's often the same case where knowing information early on is critical right that that's how you can mitigate a lot of these issues
0: now I think that makes a lot of sense to me like definitely an outage of one minute is more is not. As bad as an outage of forty minutes, because mm-hmm. the problem keeps compounding. Uh, there's there's a large space of like observability tools, right? Like the one that comes to my mind, of course, is Datadog, because that's the one I use at work. Why can't I use like a traditional observability tool in this kind of system? It may be a dumb question, but I think it'd l- really help explain the difference.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think. Well, what we're about, what I think. Observability tools. You're right. There's again, there's a whole spectrum of observability tools, and there's kind of generic ones that'll look at your data. Datadog would be an example. Um, Splunk would be an example. Those sorts of things. But then there's also, uh, I would say, much more specialized, and we focus on more specialized uh, observability. Whereas instead of just saying consume all this data and kind of give us a. a, 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 a generic display where we can look at it, we want to actually have built-in workflows. So there's something called um, OODA, Observe, Orient, Decide Act, O-O-D-A. It's actually a term that the military, U.S. military came up with uh, 50 years ago. And, and when you talk about observability tools, they're only doing the O, literally. It's in the definition. And what the military found... Um, was that in order to effectively engage in war, you need to be able to observe, you then need to be able to orient yourself, you need to be able to make decisions, and you need to be able to act. So, you know, you and I are sitting in a room and we get into a fight and you're about to punch me in the face, right? If all I can do is observe you about to punch me in the face, this is a terrible analogy, but that that it, I'm I'm doing this because I'm talking about the military, right? But if you think about it, just being able to observe the issue, okay, great, that's 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 the first step. Um, but then you need to be able to orient yourself. And what do we mean by orient? Usually, it would be okay. Um, you know, maybe I should use a, a, a cleaner analogy, like you're you're in a car and you see. A deer coming at you. You want to be able to very quickly orient yourself, um, which means look around. Is there a family of deer? Is there a deer to the left? Is there a deer to the right? And then you need to take a decision. I can miss this deer if I veer to the left. And then you need to be able to act on that, which is turn the wheel to the left. Right. So this is what, this is what it means to be able to respond quickly to, to outages. Um, and the problem is when you have generic observability tools, first off, they only cover the first step of four. Um, but beyond that, um, they don't really let you orient yourself and 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 i think orientation is is just as big a part of it and so i'll i'll give an example in finance which is or with the facebook thing which is oh my gosh we can see that a lot more orders are going out right now at this very moment than are coming in so first off to do that with a generic observability tool would be very hard to do but you could basically um encode certain rules that operators can then look at so they can sort of see and get in touch and feel these things in real time once they observe that, now they need to be able to um, orient themselves, and what they usually, uh, what we call, literally, or what we what we've uh, materialized that as, is what we call um, a drill down. So we see that there is some sort of delay. Um and orders aren't getting filled. And now we want to be able to drill down. So maybe we take the whole set of orders and we want to click on that and within moments be able to see what's going on with all of our Facebook orders. Okay, now we see this. Now we need to be able to take a decision. That might mean sending a message, um, you know, through the console to my team member saying, look, we've got an issue with Facebook. This is our exposure. What are we going to do? And now the manager can say, we need to pause all open Facebook order, right? This is how you make a decision in, in split seconds. And, and actually, another thing, you know, we, we, we've, uh, um, we're, we're talking with governments because this is the same sort of thing you need when you have a fire or, or, you know, any sort of incident in, in a government situation and in, in a civil situation, which is, you know, you need to be able to quickly find out who's around and all these things you want to be able to just shorten that life cycle to make that decision.
0: The other interesting aspect is the technology itself. Right? Like one thing that's fascinating about 3Forge's offering from what I can tell is this idea of really low latency UI updates. And like why is that important?
1: Right. Well, I think it it's so we focus on mission-critical use cases. And so the the amount of money on how do I put this? I and this is where it gets to the core of me writing software um where where we've built sort of uh, i would say a culture within three forge about how we build systems and 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 one saying i have is when it comes to building a generic platform like ours the time as developers we invest is insignificant compared to the amount of time that the users end up looking at the product. So if we end up spending an extra thousand hours developing a little widget that goes on the screen, but it can respond milliseconds faster and we have 100,000 users, you do the math and it actually makes sense, right? But it is far more complicated to build real-time systems. Now, for those listeners who are, or are technical, there's actually, in, in computer science, there's a pattern. It's called online programming versus offline programming. It's not the same as you know being online, like going on the web or offline, like you're stuck at home and your internet's down. So what online computing means is that you are reacting to deltas in the world. And as things are changing, you're doing minimal effort to update what's changed on the screen. So an example would be, is I have a chart. And that chart is showing me uh, a million points, right? I'm, I'm viewing lots of data in a chart. Now, the way almost all GUI software I've seen being built is that when anything changes, you re-render that entire chart. But that's a very inefficient way to do it. It's far more efficient to say when that, when a particular point changes, figure out really what changed on the screen and only update that component um and but this becomes important as the as the uh size of data gets larger and it also becomes important as the amount of time it takes to react becomes more and more critical but here's the thing at the end of the day that th- this is going back to the culture of three forge which is we might as well had solved it it's software we might as well had have 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 coded it as as well as we possibly can to cover the most critical use cases that we can. And that's fine for use cases that aren't mission critical, but it doesn't work the other way around. You see what I mean? If you build front-end... If you build front ends that are designed for real time, then they can handle real time. But if they don't near real time, then that's fine. You can use it in a static way. And by the way, I will say that most of our use cases, many times, they start off in what we would call a static capacity, meaning that people just want to view a chart. They want to see, you know, what their um, their uh, profits or you know, their PL was for the last few months or something like that. A very a static chart kind of overview, sort of BI type thing. But then over time, that does morph into being able to get very real-time information and being able to have these workflows. And, And by the way, when I talk about workflows, I mean the ability for multiple people sitting in maybe different locations, looking at the same data to be able to react to that. So for example, I see a chart, something looks interesting. I want to be able to put a comment on that. And the moment I put that comment, someone, you know, you're sitting in another office, you should be able to see that comment. And, and <clears throat> Right. S- similar to like Google Word doc, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If If you're familiar with that, right. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. a real time concept.
0: Yeah. No, I think that makes sense and like I want to ask from a technology perspective then like 3Fort started in 2010 and like the front end development industry or like the whole stack evolves so rapidly. So how do you how do you choose the right technology to power a business decision like we should start yeah. with real time on day 1.
1: Right. Well, I've been building I have been writing software since I was very young um in the early 80s and I so I've I've been through a lot of this and I've seen different platforms and I've seen th- how things were built and once I understood and this is kind of an arcane term for a lot of people but it's still what r- really powers anything real time once I understood how AJAX worked and the web worked um I knew that that was the future um this was in the late 90s and I made several predictions, um, frankly, all, all of which have come true, um, <laughs> about the, about where technology would go. Um, I felt that first off, uh, computers, the, the, the CPUs themselves would stop getting faster. Clock cycles would cease to get faster and faster, which by the way was a fairly controversial prediction to make. Um, I felt that computers, you know, that, that we could not, we, you know just we're hitting physical limits and the idea of getting to 10 gigahertz 100 gigahertz 1000 gigahertz which is what the trend was suggesting that just wasn't going to happen we would we had to level out at some point um all, but with that the ability to do parallel computing um which turned out to be GPUs that went that that has gone way up right now we see CPUs with many many cores um, so that that prediction influenced how we ended up building scalable software. That's one piece of it. Another piece was is that I felt that memory um, would get larger and larger and larger. I should say the capacity would get larger and larger, um, and that has happened. Um, memory has continued to. I'm not sure if it's doubled year after year. I'd have to look at a chart. But and when I talk about this, I mean both uh, RAM and on disk. You know, it's 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 continued to get faster and larger. Um, and then when it came to front-end, I felt that the web was the ultimate solution. Because the web does not require any install on the desktop. It, it's a much more secure way of building applications from an end-user perspective. It's also um, guarantees. And, and one of the issues we have in finance with heavyweight front-end applications is, they take up, they, you know, developers have a tendency to put way too much logic in that heavyweight desktop that ends up slowing down the user's desktop. You can't really, or, you know, if you're, if you're building your, your web application in any sort of reasonable way, you will avoid that. Um, and, and so I knew that this was kind of the way to go. And in fact, I realized once you had Ajax, you could actually go all the way, You we've basically re, we can re-implement this concept all the way back from the 70s, uh, X-Windows. And X-Windows is also, I think, a very, very clever technology. The problem is it was very Linux-based, um, so it didn't really, you know, gain a lot of exposure. But the idea of X-Windows was you basically write all your code server-side. Um, and then it's just pushing um, GUI updates to the client side. It's actually pretty incredible that they had built this in the 70s, in my opinion. And that's really what the web is. And that's, that's how we are treating a web browser. Um, so I would say it was based a lot by on looking at the history of how software had been built in the past, what had worked, um, and you know what, what wasn't working. And I felt that heavyweight applications just weren't working um, well. And they had a lot of overhead.
0: So, most of the computation, or like all of it, is really done on the server and it keeps pushing down updates in some shape right. through to the client. We, okay. we do
1: apps. And in fact, this is why we've had to build every single component from scratch of course we let people embed their own but we built every component from scratch designed to put minimum data in the web browser and i cannot overstate how important that is Um, we so for example just like google maps allows you to zoom in on a map that's how our charts work so when you look at a chart you're getting a certain set of data when you zoom in on a quadrant that's automatically pushing just the data for that portion of the chart to the front end Otherwise, you would never be able to view 20 million points of data. Take just about any charting application you've ever used and try to load 20 million points into it. It won't work. Now, you know, you could argue that there's information fatigue by having that information. But when you have mission critical situations, you don't want a large amount of data to be crashing your browser and, and, you know stopping you from proceeding. Um, another example would be uh, a drop down. Something as silly as a drop down. Let's say you've got a drop down field and it has 10,000 and you want to have a list of all the symbols where it auto completes. You do not want to push all 10,000 instruments aka symbols to the client you want as a user types it's bringing that back and bring it to the front end now of course you know a lot of times that's coded manually but we've basically made it available out of the box without writing a single line of code same thing with our tables same thing with our trees same thing with our heat maps um, all the way through so the idea is at no point when you hit refresh on your browser, is it going to move anything more than the minimal amount of data that you literally are seeing on the screen? And as you scroll, it's we're, we're pulling some tricks to make it feel very, very fast. But as you're scrolling around, it's pulling in the data based on where your scroll bars are.
0: Interesting. So like what you're really engineering is this extremely high performance component library, which is not how most people design component libraries even today. And it has to interoperate with each other really well. Correct. Like all the different components. Yeah,
1: and that's the and that's actually I think one of the the beauties about building all these components ourselves is I think one of the issues when you start gluing a lot of GUI, off the shelf GUI components together they actually don't interact very well. Different things are designed different ways. So for example, let's just I'll just pick something here. Like you hit Control A, right? If I'm on a table and I hit Control A, I want it to select all the rows. If I'm in a chart, I want it to select all the points. If I'm in a heat map, I want it to select all. You know what I mean? I can go through each one of these. And a lot of times when you end up gluing different components together, it's like, well, control A works this way on this, and it does this on that, something else on something else. Um, And then you hit the tab key, and it's moving around, and it isn't consistent. So by building all components from scratch, um, it actually provides a very... um, I would say seamless or um, user friendly experience. Beyond that, more importantly, there's no development work necessary, which does scare developers a lot. You know, the idea that you don't have to write JavaScript or HTML, zero JavaScript or HTML, and you can build front, fully interactive real time web front ends is, is actually a little jarring to some, to some software developers. But that is the future, that, that period that is, that is where this will go.
0: No, I think that makes sense, especially if you want to have this high performance. Right, like you can't expect everyone to think in the same principles of this has to work with twenty million data points, right? And
1: uh, and 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 let me just step back. You know, let, let's pick. Let's pick the. I'm going to go back to my dropdown now. Let's say we have a dropdown, and that dropdown has, I don't know, a hundred elements in it because it's like the state united states it has 50 it has 50 elements in it all of the states in the united states and it works fine and the developers are told look here's the specs you know this is going to be a state drop you're like all right 50 states that's not that bad but then 2 years later someone says you know what we're now a global product um we're not just going to have states in here we're going to do all you know regions around the world and suddenly that drop down with 50 elements has 5000 elements in it yeah. or 50000 elements in it and and now You've got to go, and this isn't a great analogy, but I think it's one people can relate to, which is now the engineers say, well, I designed this for 50 elements. But the question is, why not design everything to handle, why not design the component right once that's designed to handle as much data as possible? So whether it's 50, 500, 5,000, or 50,000, or 500,000, that component is designed to handle that volume of data. Um, and so you don't have to worry about it, and that way all your components are built the same way. So we always try to worry about worst case scenario, and then work backwards from there.
0: Yeah, I wonder. Like often developers may say, "Oh, that's over engineering," but mm-hmm. I feel like if Never. you have this design principle in mind. It, it's not actually that much more work. It's just a correct. different design. That's a correct. Yeah.
1: It, it would be over-engineering if, if you were building it over and over again. If I had 10 select fields on the screen, I don't know why I keep picking on select fields, but if you had 10 select fields on the screen and you went and did this 10 times, that would be over-engineering. But if you yeah. build it once and you build it right, exactly. and you build it so that the entire world can use this component then it's not over engineering. It's, it, it makes sense. You're getting economies of scale there.
0: Yeah. And and it's also like if, it, if building it right is 10 times more work than building it wrong, like one, okay. It may be worth considering deploying the hack, but secondly, you should really think about why it takes so much time to build it. Right. Like, and there's something probably wrong with the abstractions then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. I mean, well, the thing is at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, how different is this than other applications? And by the way, one of the reasons I started 3Forge um, amongst what I talked about before was I felt as as, as I was moving from job to job, um, from company to company or department or department or use case to use case, I felt like I was, it's like the use cases had had a 90% more or more overlap meaning that they all needed the same components. Some of them needed them really fast and in real time, and some of them didn't. And some of them needed really large data sets, and some of them didn't. But at the end of the day, why not build something that can handle really large data sets and be real time and have all the user feature, you know, the creature comforts that users expect, build that once, build it right, and then no matter the use case, you can use it.
0: Yeah, so yeah. Y- you've been working on Wall Street for a while before Three Forge, and then you've decided, okay, I need to build a company, and because I'm seeing the same use case come again and again. Right. But you know, for an engineer in like Silicon Valley or just in general, like the whole idea of selling to Wall Street directly, like it just feels, at least for me, it seems like it's too far away. It's too big of a stretch. Like, where do you even begin? How do you know your like you You've been there, so you know some of the use cases, but. It feels like the sales cycle is going to be really long. It seems like there's going to be a ton of approvals you would need to get. Like, how does that all work out?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, I would say that in, in fitting in with the whole um, concept I've been talking about now um, around why not build it for the hardest use case possible. Then I, I've also said to myself, why not sell this to the hardest customers possible? Because if you can sell it to the hardest, most demanding customers, um, then that makes it an easy sale for others. You have that brand reputation. And that's the angle I've gone for. Because I think it's very hard to work the other way around. In fact, I know the name of this podcast talks about scaling. You know, It's one of those things where it's really hard to build a piece of software and, And say, okay, we're going to sell this to mom and pop buy side, small firms with 50 to 100 employees. And then later on, we'll scale this up and we'll go and we'll sell it to Morgan Stanley. That usually doesn't work. But it can work the other way, which is you say, we're going to build this for the very complex, large commercial use cases. And then we can use that same software um, basically for, for smaller, simpler use cases, it's that that approach works um and so that's that's really why i felt it was important to go in and sell um to the to the you know to the tier one banks first in order to get that a to prove that it works to myself but also to prove that it works to at that time our future customers the smaller you know smaller customers yeah
0: so so you start with the the game on hard mode like Yes. The game on hard mode means that it's going to be tough, right? So, like, what did you have to do? I don't know how many details you could share, but anything <laughs> would be interesting.
1: Yeah. Sure. Well, I can tell you this. Um, and, you know, it, it's funny because I, I do believe in the concept of overengineering or premature optimization. I get that. But it's actually, the term is used way more than it should. Um, especially if you're going to be building generic software. And by the way, it 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 took. A, I look back on it and I'm like, I, I can't believe the leap of faith I took because I sat there for months building these ultra efficient libraries under the presumption that the whole world would be using these things. But I had no I had no facts or no evidence to actually say that would be the case. Now it is, but I look back on it, and the fact that I sat there for months writing ultra-fast string libraries as an <laughs> example, right—the ability yeah. to process strings, to do you know, <laughs> to do fuzzy comparisons and things like that, really, really fast—that's a pretty that that I look back on it. It's pretty crazy that that's what I did, but I knew I needed to focus. So I guess what I would say is that um, in order to build really fast. To build a really, really good mousetrap, you have to start with very, very good ingredients. And I felt that I needed to step back, work on these individual components individually, make them to the best of my ability, and then basically, you know, keep layering on top of that to get to where we need to be. So, you know, while most people would see us as a GUI sort of solution or a full stack platform, um, years 12 and 13 was was spent on marshal how, on how to marshal a piece of data as fast as possible so that I could communicate it between two processes so that I could do um, elastic scaling you know and that's 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 that was the first two years of this product then after that we focused on how do we do real time caching um columnar compression things like that and so but these are these are the things that you start with and then at the end of the day you can put the window dressing on it and then go out and sell this. And so that was kind of where we got, you know, at some point 2014, 15, then we actually had enough of a GUI that we could go out and start to market this. Now, of course, it's a very mature product at this point, but it's all sitting on those same underpinnings from from 2011,
0: 2012. It's fascinating how similar that story is to like the Figma founding story where they just spent years and years making the best. Design product possible, and then once you show it to someone, so I'm imagining something exactly. similar would have happened in your case where you just you can have the skiller demo of like here's an app that sends me two hundred thousand data points a second and look how seamlessly you can add and like show these things and zoom in and zoom out and it's like obvious to the buyer that there's nothing else on the market that works as well as this thing mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And and I have to say it was quite magical when we actually when you pull plug all the pieces together and you get it there. It's a pretty awesome feeling. But it's actually exactly what you said. That's that's probably our best demo where we say, look, stream in 200,000 points a second. I don't know how you guessed that number because that's maybe maybe you've done your <laughs> research, but that's literally the numbers we're looking at, you know, between yeah. 50,000 and a million messages a second. You stream that into our system and now you can b- build real-time GUIs on top of that. Not that you need to day 1 but it's nice to know that you have that scale when you get there. And and another thing, and by the way, another thing I, I, I was going to say about, um, you know, people talk about premature optimization and things like that. What I have realized in in my travels is that no matter how fast I build a piece of software, the end users will find a way to max it out. It It just doesn't matter. You know what I mean? I, I don't know how to put it. It's like, if I can make, a, if I can make the software run five times as much, they're just going to put five times more data in it. And if I can make it run a hundred times faster, they're just going to put a hundred times more data in it. And so, and, and the thing is you can scale. Scaling works. I mean, you can go from one server to 10 servers to a hundred servers, but you actually start to even hit some limits when you talk about, I mean, you really want to have to have a thousand servers to solve this. You're much better writing the software a thousand times faster in the first place. And that's, and that's realistic, by the way. Uh, There's a great interview from, from Steve Jobs, where he talks about, you know, the best developers, you can write software that's a thousand times faster than, than the developer sitting next to you. If, if you really focus on it and and you're focused on high quality code. Um, And so that's been our thing. Yes. Write it as fast as possible. And in fact, um, we still are constantly looking at the platform and, you know, as we get more use cases and people use it in, Unimaginable ways, literally, ways I couldn't think that it would be used. Um, we go back and try to refine it. And say, can we make this more efficient, etc.? So that's that's really been the focus.
0: Yeah, in terms of team composition and hiring the right people to work on this stuff, like I think there's a certain mindset of an engineer that you need to have. Like, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, well, first off, I think it started with. I mean, at 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 the risk of sounding a bit. Uh, um, narcissistic. I mean I I have spent my whole life thinking about software and how could I write the best software possible? And in fact, it's funny when I first started writing code, I I got genuinely concerned. I mean, here I am, I'm 10 years old and I realize I really like writing software and I started thinking, but all the all the fun software is going to be written and there's going to be nothing left to do unless I get really really good at software. There's not going to be any de- developer jobs left because all the good code's going to get written and then everyone's just going to reuse that and there's not going to be any developer jobs so i need to get really really good at writing software if i want to have a shot at being a developer little did i yeah, that that is that is my big <laughs> that is my big miscalculation is that there's now more developer jobs than ever right that's so i was wrong on that i will i will concede that i was wrong on that but it still set something in my mind from a very young age that i need to be the best i can possibly be um and so i think what that has done as i 've built my engineering team that 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 sort of it's almost like a sports team you know and and when you work with the team and there's one guy who's trying real hard, then you try really hard, and then you realize if if and when you join a team and you see people are really taking it seriously and love what they do, and they 're smart people that that motivates you to want to be smart and try hard and and it feeds into itself it's like the it's like the most awesome feedback loop and you know I don't really spend i mean I I'm the CTO of the company I don't spend a lot of time i, I don't know criticizing or or you know whipping the chain saying go do this go do that I, I genuinely believe and and I'm sure many of the employees are listening to this pod will listen to this podcast would agree that you know they like doing the work and it's fun to work with people that enjoy and and are smart and build good software, and so it feeds into itself. And and I will say that I think you know I like to think that it kind of started with my attitude. And 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 what I love is that I've seen that that attitude. You know, I've been able to hire the right people that embrace that attitude, and maybe they had that attitude before joining the company, but I think we certainly all share that now. Yeah,
0: I think I think founders definitely set the culture, right? and I think what mm-hmm. people don't realize often is that engineers like working on high quality things Mm -hmm. um it sucks your energy if you are working on a product and it's buggy and it's like customers are upset and even though you're like okay moving fast and breaking things or whatever it it still sucks your energy
1: sometimes it's like Mm -hmm. i just
0: want to work on something that works (laughs) right like people underestimate that yeah
1: Exactly. No, you know it. it, And I've definitely been on both sides of the aisle. I mean, you know, you take over a piece of software that's really buggy, but maybe it's really profitable because it's a great business idea. Um, But that's just, you know, you just feel like you're you're working on this sinking ship or something. I don't know how to put it. And that's not nearly as much fun, yeah, as working on really high quality stuff. It's like, you know, it's like working on an F one race car. You know what I mean? You're working with the best engineers, you know, you're you're like, "My gosh, here we are trying to like just refine the engine and do all this analysis to make it a little bit faster so the car goes a little bit faster." And that's that's I think the dream of engineers is to work on stuff like that. And that's what that's the kind of culture at least I'm trying to build.
0: And at the very least, like I think a team has to be composed of different people who think on that spectrum in a different way. Yes. If you have too many people who are just trying to optimize that last one percent, maybe you're not thinking as much about the business use case. And Fair if you enough. have yeah, and if you have too many on the other side, then you're gonna release shitty software. Yes. So you and need that's, like that's, that mix.
1: That yeah. that's an astute observation. I you know, and that's probably one that I've actually learned through. Three Forge, uh, because I hired the best engineers, and there was a point in 2019 where we had no salespeople. I, I mean, it, it's pretty remarkable that we had, you know, some of the top tier one banks in the world using our software. We had no salespeople, we had no marketing people, we had no graphics people. All I had were math and physics and software engineers. That's, that's what we use to basically build our product. You know, that's, that's what I felt. And then at some point you realize, well, by getting different disciplines and different inputs and different types of people, that actually helps a lot. And it might not be exactly how I think, but that, that, that complements the company incredibly. And I think that was actually a big learning point in the three forge story um in 2019 was a big year when we started to say look we need to yeah we need we need to get different opinions and different disciplines in here and then that allowed us i mean dramatically changed the company and the and the profile company customer profile yeah
0: and maybe like one more question on like a similar note but geared towards like customers perhaps is i'd love to know you know what were customers using before like a high quality piece of software. And I'm sure you think about ThreeForge as shipping high quality software. Like what was the state before? And like, why do you think they're jumping on to a better yeah. product? I
1: like. think it, it's varying degrees. It's varying degrees. Now, I think one of the biggest problems with, and, and I could pick different customers segments, and talk about what they're using, um, and I think a lot of times products get abused in ways they shouldn't. I mean, I could say it's sad the number of times I find out customers have Perl scripts or Python scripts um, or shell scripts to basically manage data during an outage. I mean, that's that's just you know, and 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 I could go, I could spend an hour talking about just the problems and the likeliness that that's taking place within many organizations. Uh, but the, one of the big things is. People write these scripts and then they leave and that's gone. So that, so it's really not growing the company's intellectual property at all. It's just a guy, right, or a girl writing a script to help them do their job. Then when they leave. So something as trivial as that. We have other customers that are probably doing way too much in Excel. So we help them move away and I, you know, Excel is probably one of them best software products in the world. It's incredible the things you can do with it, but it also has its limits. And so a lot of times we can help with that um, and, and we're replacing things along those lines. Um, so I think, you know, I could I could pick the different segments and, and talk about what they were using and what they've moved to. But I think the biggest thing for us when we talk about the large customers is that it's extremely siloed. And by that, I mean, if you take any large bank or any large company the company has orchest- or has has organized their software in line with how they've organized their employee structure at least this is my my opinion this is robert cook's the opinion Conway, as to how what i see
0: or something yeah right
1: and and so literally it's like okay we have our our equities department and we have our fixed income department, and we have this, and we have that. And so they build their systems uh, siloed in that way. And then they build their support systems siloed on top of that. And so if a customer calls up and says, "I'd like to understand um, what's going on you know, within equities and within um, FX." That's two different groups, two different systems. There's no way to correlate between the two. It's kind of like back in the day, you know, the fire department and the police department don't didn't talk to each other, right? Because they literally it was siloed. Like you had the police department doing one thing, you had a fire department doing another, and the communication wasn't there. Imagine that sort of thing. And, and the thing that we focus on is basically building systems that cut across that. Um, and so that's a big thing that we help with is replacing these, I would say, very siloed specific solutions for a particular use case with a more broad solution that gives them kind of a, a, a dashboard that cuts across, um, I guess you could call it by, uh, all their different, you know, risk categories.
0: So, As a technologist, like you... Are definitely like interested in making sure your systems work as well as possible. Are there open source systems out there that you're excited about? Like things that you think are like changing the way we're thinking about data or like thinking like the way the market is thinking about systems and how good the performance of certain systems could be. Like one that comes to my mind is Red Panda, it's like a replacement of Kafka. I don't know if you've heard about that, but that's the kind of. I'm wondering if you have things that you're excited about, or technology changes you think are going to be instrumental over the next few years.
1: Yeah, I think I, I I'll I'll be blunt. I'm not a huge. I think saw. So, I think open source software has its place, but it's hard in a in a, in a corporate. I believe it's hard in a corporate setting. Okay. Now there's a lot of products that will kind of position themselves as open source but then you really end up paying for it through support and it's basically you know closed in terms of being able to contribute to that open source so it's not I I would say, necessarily open source. Um, With that said, I think there's a lot of really good, um, there's a lot of things happening out there. To me, what's shocking, though, you you mentioned uh, Kafka and other other messaging solutions is how many new systems there are. And to me, that's what's actually scary about this. I think at this point, we integrate with over 100 different types of databases and real-time messaging systems. We integrate with dozens of different entitlement systems. We integrate with many different browsers and smart desktops. Um, that's one of the big things we focus on is trying to be kind of this 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 platform that sits across your organization. So we're always integrating this. But to me, it's almost scary. It's almost not it seems like it's on we're going on a bad path here where there's so much innovation of different technologies that have a 90% overlap. Um, it, you know, I think it's I think it creates a lot of technical debt down the road. Now at the end of the day, I also think that, you know, by of of course we don't want to stymie that. I think that there's also a lot of interesting things out of that. Um, I really, I really pay attention to it from an academic aspect. At the same time, um, I, 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 there's nothing in particular that I'm saying. Wow, that, that to me is a game changer.
0: I think, I think that makes a ton of sense to me. Um, and and finally, to just to like wrap up, right? Like, what are you excited about? Just gently for three, four trade. What do you think the next few years is going to look like? What do you think? Um, is a little scary, like. What do you think is going to be different?
1: Uh, well, I'll start with the scary part. Like I mentioned, um, the number of different systems out there is continuously growing, and that, to me, I don't know if I'd use the word scary, but it is uh, uh, it is worth taking note of. You know, I mean, as as there's so many different ways, and and you and just if if you could imagine being in our shoes and we come into an organization, we say, okay, you know, we're going to help you cut across your different groups. What are you using? And then they list 25 different database technologies and 15 different messaging systems. And then they're saying, we want to query this system, bring the results and query that system. When those results come in, now you're going to query those five different types of databases, bring that in. And then you're going to blend that with some message coming in from Kafka and some other, you know, <laughs> TIBCO. And, and we have to Orchestrate and bring all that together, and that seems to be just a trajectory of more and more software out there. So, um, I would say that's one of the things that that I, I think companies should be wary yeah. of um, is you know is trying to limit the amount of different technologies they're embracing all at once. Um, what gets me very excited about 3Forge, um, so first off, you know, I spent I spent ten years of my life building a platform and a concept that really I'd say is un that has no equal in, in and I'm not saying no equal in terms of, that we have no competitors. That's not what I mean. I'm saying in terms of the approach we took um and and I and I like to believe the discipline we had. Um, and you know there there's many years in the beginning where it's like, is this even going to work? Are we going to be able, are our customers going to see the value in what it means to be able to view large amounts of data across many different systems and take action on that, and et cetera, et cetera? Um, we now know that we have the data and we have the customer base to say with absolute certainty that, yes, this is this is the right direction. It was time well spent. Um, it was, it was, you know, a good investment to, to spend all those years doing that. Um, to me, I think, you know, we started doing, um, a lot more marketing in the last year and we're seeing a, a, a huge growth in terms of our customer base. And the thing that we're working on now through events and, you know, we're doing, um, um, you know, we did a global tour last year. I'm doing another one this year. Um, we did visit India, three different cities. Um, uh we you know it it it's now about building that developer community so that developers can start to interact with other developers on our platform and so that they can kind of share that, you know, basically share their experience. And then and then I think the product takes on a life of its own. It's no longer about three forge pushing it. It's about it's about users and the developer community just just getting together kind of globally and being able to um adapt yeah. for it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really exciting and yeah. scary time for sure. I guess you could say that's scary yeah. in yeah itself.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, yes. Like, <laughs> I, I've seen like all of the community driven or like the like open source systems or just general systems with communities. Like I feel like there's all the discussions about hard forks and making sure everyone's mm-hmm. on the same page and infinite list of GitHub issues. Definitely Ugh. an exciting time, but
1: yeah, I, don't, I know we're at the end of the podcast yeah. here, but um, I could talk about software forking and all the issues of that for, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a yeah. scary topic in and of itself, yeah. but, but we have focused on that. Yes. Single well, fork, single, single, single branch of code for three. Yes, forks.
0: Yes. Well, I'd, <laughs> I'd love to have you on the show again in a few sure. months, like as you've, as you see this thing evolve and like, especially like retrospect, like, Oh, what we discussed a year ago that didn't end up working out, and we did something else. Like I think those are the most interesting yep. kinds of conversations. So I'd love to have you on again, and okay. thank you so much for being on the show. Hope you had okay. fun.
1: Thank okay, thank you. It was a pleasure.